All right, folks. Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, turn it to Matthew chapter 5. We've been hanging out there for the last little while. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we recognize you as our Lord and our Savior. We want to follow you. And Lord, I just confess for all of us that that's hard. Lord, because what you ask us to do is not always easy. And yet we ask that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to follow you as we read your word and understand what it says and how we apply it to our lives. I pray that you would help us to trust that your way is actually better than ours. So open our hearts and our ears. Loosen my tongue and allow my words to be what you've put on my heart. Anything that's not from me, may it just go right out the window and not heard by anyone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our series called The Upside Down Kingdom, where we're looking at this idea of the kingdom of God. This reality that God invites us into to live in as Christ followers. Before we accept Christ into our lives, we kind of get to do kind of whatever we want. And that's half true, but we won't get into that today. But if you're someone here today and you would say, you know what, Brian, I wouldn't classify myself as a Jesus follower, someone who wants to follow Jesus, then that means that you get to follow something else whether that's the culture outside, whether that's your own thoughts and feelings, whatever that might be, you kind of have, quote-unquote, freedom to do whatever you want. For those of us who would say, I want to be a Christ follower, we, as, as we've just said in that last song, we've kind of submitted ourselves to the will of God and, and are now trying to figure out how do we understand what God has to say to us and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live and how do we put the rubber on the road and actually do that. It's not as easy as it sounds. We're going to talk a little bit more about following Jesus next week when we have the baptisms. But for today, I just want to say that for those of us who have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, we now are invited to live in this kingdom of God reality. And the kingdom of God reality, as we've been seeing for the last few weeks, is very different than the reality that we see in our world. The value system is very different, almost completely opposite, where you know, independence and dependence are, are reversed, where money and power are, are seen as less important than relationships and people and God. Before we look at today's topic, which is continuing on that, I want to address something absolutely crucial. Last week, we tackled... A very touchy subject. We've been tackling tough subjects all the way through. Last week was especially tough and touchy for some people. We looked at divorce and what Jesus says about divorce. Not because it's a trendy thing to talk about. Not because I was really excited to talk about divorce. But because Jesus talked about it. And it's something that we hear about every day in our lives. And it's something that many of us are either going through or know someone who's going through. And so... We kind of really have to talk about it. Otherwise, what are we doing? And I have to tell you that it would have been much easier for me to just come up here and talk about rainbows and unicorns, to come up here each and every week and tell you that you're okay and I'm okay, to pat each other on the backs and go home feeling warm and ooey-gooey inside. But that wouldn't be real, and that certainly wouldn't be faithful to the message that we see in Scripture of Jesus. 
Because the message of Jesus is not, you're okay and I'm okay. It's actually, you're not okay, I'm not okay, we are horribly broken and our values are messed up, and we are in desperate need of a savior. And so here at Chalmers, I want to tell you, especially if you're a visitor here and you like stumbled in or you've been here for a few weeks and you're like, okay, this has been kind of some hard teaching, but it's going to soften up and we're going to talk about rainbows and unicorns soon. I want to tell you that here at Chalmers, we are going to deal with the hard topics like money, sex, marriage, divorce, sin, forgiveness, reconciliation, and our desperate need for a savior. Because we are a church that believes that the Bible is true, and we are a church that will put Jesus first in our lives, and always we need to submit our choices and our will to God found in the Bible. So last week was a hard topic. It was a hard topic because the value system of our culture says that marriage is absolutely easily disposable. It can be thrown away when it breaks. That's why over 50% of marriages in and outside of the church and in divorce. And more than that, we need to be willing to follow Jesus, not only when it's easy, but also especially when it's hard. Whenever we come to a decision in our lives, whenever we come to a decision in our lives, and our culture tells us there's an easy answer, but Jesus tells us that there's a better answer, a good answer, friends, we always, always, always need to choose Jesus. Now, with that in mind, the second thing I want to say to you is last week's message, I know it was particularly difficult for a number of people in our congregation because there are lots of, a number of people in our congregation who are going through separations or who are already divorced. And that's why I ended the message last week by asking that if anyone was offended, if anyone was confused, if anyone was uncomfortable with what I had said, to come and to talk to me so that we could make sure people weren't leaving feeling judged or condemned. Because, friends, I want to tell you that the grace of God is bigger than a broken marriage. I want to tell you on that note, this week has been a busy week. There have been many people who have had the courage to call me, text me, email me, get together for coffee, and share their story of brokenness and hurt through a relationship that was meant to last a lifetime, but because of the sinfulness of people, ended prematurely. And we were able to talk through the scriptures and hear each other and recognize that we still live in a broken world where people hurt each other and themselves, and divorce is sometimes a last resort. But it never should be the first resort. There are people in this congregation who have experienced horrendous things, verbal, physical, emotional abuse at the hands of their spouse. And so I want right now just to thank those who were willing to talk and willing to not just leave, willing to wrestle through the scriptures and admit their hurts. I want to invite us all to continue to be a church family that on the one hand never calls sin okay, and yet at the same time always rests in the grace of God. And if we can do that, then people who have been broken and hurt 
from relationships that have prematurely ended can come in through these doors and find healing and find love and find acceptance and find the grace of God. And that's exactly what we as a church are supposed to be. Now with all that said, we're actually going to get into the topic that we're dealing with today. Again, not an easy topic. We can thank Jesus for that. If you have your Bible, please turn it to Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. This is what we read. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Told you it wasn't going to be easy. This is a hard teaching. Depending on your situation, it might actually even be harder or equally hard as last week's. But if we miss it, we miss the beauty of the gospel entirely. In this scripture passage, we hear Jesus tell us to treat others with love. And that sounds good. Until he says, even those who are our enemies. That sounds less good. But who are our enemies? I need to tell you that when I first heard Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I easily just shrugged off this commandment. Because I couldn't think of anyone in my life who was my enemy or who persecuted me. Many of you, those of you who have broad shoulders like myself, who wear the Teflon armor like I do, may not think I have a lot of enemies. But as I thought of Jesus' words, I've come to realize that Jesus is calling us to love our enemies, and the enemies are the people who we would find very, very difficult to love. And when you think about it that way, it might be a little bit easier to find a few people in that category. (laughs) Now I think of the example of Corey Ten Boom. She was a a Christian in Holland during World War II, where she became part of the Holland Underground Hiding Refugees. And in February 1944, she and her entire family were arrested by the Nazi police and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp there. And it was there in that concentration camp that her and her sister received horrible treatment from the concentration camp guards and that her sister eventually died. Now, when I think about Corey Ten Boom, I have to ask the question, is God really asking Corey Ten Boom to love her enemies and pray for her concentration camp guards? To bring this example maybe a lot closer to today, 
If you are watching the news, if you are on Facebook, if you are kind of connected in any way to social media or, or regular media, we constantly hear about the suicide bombers that have cost thousands of lives. This terrorist regime known as ISIS is doing absolutely horrific things to many innocent people. And on Facebook, we read these posts, pray for Paris, pray for Beirut. And certainly we must. But then I read this verse, and it seems to be saying that it's self-evident to be praying for the victims. That's automatic. But Jesus is actually calling us to do more than that. We need to be praying for the men and the women in ISIS. Now for some people here who have actually served in a war or who have lost loved ones in a war, what I just said may be enough for you to understand just how upside down Jesus' teachings on love are compared to our worldly views. For those of you who aren't there yet, think about a person in your life that you would just find very hard to love. Maybe it's the person at work who blames you for their mistakes or who slacks off making more work for you. Maybe it's that neighbor who continues to argue with you over that one tree that's on the property line, the one that you love but they want to cut down. Maybe it's the person from your past that has hurt you so badly you can still feel it sometimes. I want to empathize with you here that if this was not from Jesus' own lips, I would dare not say it. But God wants you to pray for and to forgive and to love those people. Now, when Jesus tells us to do this, he neither calls us to act violently towards our enemies, but he also doesn't call us to act passively and to accept violence and hatred passively. Instead, he commands us to serve those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who attack us. See, the Jesus way is intentional peace through equality, service, and loving rebuke of sin. Well, Brian, where in the world are you getting that? Let's look at Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law, a law that was seen as just and equal. If someone knocks out your eye, you can knock out their eye. If somebody cuts off your wife's hand, you can cut off their hand. The interesting thing about this law is that it was actually given as a limiting law. It was given as a limiting law. The idea behind the law was not simply to make things just and equal, but to to prohibit obsessive retaliation. For example, you cannot go and kill your neighbor just because the neighbor accidentally knocked out your tooth. It put a limit to what you could do, what you could do in retaliation. So that's what the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. It was a limiting law. But then Jesus says this. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Two things here that we can see. First of all, um, Jesus is telling us that his teachings is more important than the Old Testament. 
it isn't that Jesus is trying to undermine the Old Testament laws at all, but that the Old Testament law is a shadow of the reality that we now live in. Therefore, whenever we look at the Old Testament, at the wars and the violence and the horrible things done in the name of God, we need to look at them through the lens of Jesus and his teaching. We look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that we see the fulfillment of the law. In Jesus, we see the true heart of God. We call this the Jesus hermeneutic, or the Jesus lens. And so when you're reading through the Old Testament and you don't totally understand it, it may be because you're not reading it through the lens of the New Testament. So know know the New Testament. Start with the New Testament. If, If you're trying to figure out how do I read the Bible, start with the New Testament. Get to know Jesus. And then you can read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Second thing that we see here is that Jesus' teachings are radical. Do not resist an evil person. Wow. This isn't a metaphor he's saying. This is something that is very literal. Do not resist an evil person. But again, we need to continue reading and understand in context what he's meaning. Because it doesn't mean to passively allow violence in your life. He continues, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I was thinking that maybe I was going to like invite someone up here and I'd have like a whole lot of hands. Who wants to slap their pastor? <clears throat> but instead, we're just going to like visualize for a second. Understanding this in context is important because we've all thought about like, oh yeah, turn the other cheek, right? Like what does that actually mean? Well, when in context... We need to think that the first century Judean culture, most people were predominantly right-handed. The left hand was like your toilet hand. It was an unclean hand. You wouldn't like serve people food with your left hand. You wouldn't eat food with your left hand. People were predominantly right-handed. I'm left-handed. I feel that that's a huge insult. But (laughs) people were predominantly right-handed. And so, if someone's going to slap you, they're going to use their forceful hand. Jesus says, if they slap you on the right cheek, okay, well, if you're facing me, everybody put out your right hand. You all get to, like, slap me at the same time. This is going to be great. So, you're going to aim for my right cheek. I'm facing you. You're aiming for my right cheek. How are you going to get to my right cheek? By the back hand. Yeah. You're going to hit me with your back hand, which was the slap of a slave. And Jesus says this, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, in other words, he, everybody understands this, in his context, we don't, that's why we're doing this. <clears throat> Some of you were pretty forceful there, I must say. <laughs> but if you're going to slap someone as a slave, you're saying, you're beneath me, get away from me. And Jesus says, if somebody slaps you like a slave, if somebody demeans you, Somebody takes your humanity out of you. Turn to them the other cheek as well. Let them slap you again. But this time, they have to do it as an equal. What Jesus says here is that if someone's going to slap you, let them slap you again. It does two things. Not only do they have to slap you the second time as an equal, but the first time... 
is out of anger, right? Once they've slapped you, some of their anger might have subsisted, especially if you don't slap them back and then start a fist fight. But once you turn that other cheek, now the blood has slowed down a little bit, and you're saying, okay, you've just insulted me by calling me a slave. I want you now to slap me again as an equal. He continues on. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In other translations, it talks about cloaks and tunics. But the important thing, and the cloak and tunic might be easier to understand a little bit, because one of them was a long piece of clothing that was kind of like a muumuu or a dress or something. Like it was a long piece that went like down to your ankles. It's kind of what we, why we understand why we think that Jesus walked around in a bathrobe. He didn't. But like we have that image in our minds that he's got this long piece of clothing and then he's got an outer piece of clothing as well. And so people wore two pieces of clothing. They didn't wear underwear. They didn't wear pants. And so if someone sues you for one article of clothing, they're going to take one of your piece of clothing, but you still have the other piece to cover up your nakedness. What Jesus is saying here is that if they're going to force you to give one piece of clothing, a piece of clothing that you desperately still need, give to them everything. Give to them both pieces of clothing. Yes, that would mean that you were naked. Some of us would not be sued more than others. But there's an interesting thing about nakedness in that culture. Nakedness was shameful, but it was shameful to the person who saw the nakedness, not to the person who was naked. It was shameful to the person who saw your nakedness. You could think back to like Noah being naked in the tent. And the Bible doesn't say anything about that being shameful for Noah, but for the son who saw his father's nakedness. And again, Jesus is trying to to build up some equality to help us to actively show the other person that what they are doing is not right. It's shameful. And so, he says, if someone's going to sue you and take something very valuable for you, give to him more than that to show how shameful their action is. Number three, continues, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, this is a really interesting one in context. Outside of context, we go, well, I don't really understand what that means. But in context, what it meant was that Roman soldiers were allowed by law to conscript peasants or citizens, whoever they found, to carry their baggage, their backpack, their equipment, anything that they were bringing for one mile. So a Roman soldier could see you working on your farm and say, hey, you come here, you're going to travel with me for one mile, you're going to be my pack mule for one mile. This, again, was a limiting law. It was there so that soldiers couldn't take advantage of peasants and make them carry all their stuff by force, because soldiers are kind of scary. 
for like 10 miles. One mile was the maximum they were allowed to conscript you for. So what is Jesus saying here? If they force you to go one mile, be willing to go a second mile. The first mile, you're their slave. You have to do it. You hate them. They are the opposing, oppressive Romans. You wish they were dead, but you are their servant. You are their slave at that time, and that is horrible. And you could be angry and bitter and, I hate this, this is horrible. And Jesus says, bring equality back into it. You have to go the one mile. You won't have a choice. But when that one mile ends, and the Roman soldier says gruffly to you, all right, give me my stuff back. Hold on to it and say, no, it's okay. I got another mile in me. And all of a sudden, the Roman soldier is going, but what if somebody sees you going more, but I'm going to get in trouble because you're carrying my, no, no, it's okay. No, just, just put them down. It's okay. I'll carry this. And the power has totally reversed. Because the first mile, you were a slave. The second mile, you're an equal. Let's go for another hike. It's all good. So that's the context that Jesus talks about. What in the world does that mean for us today? Because we don't have Romans conscripting us. We don't have people forcing us to travel one kilometer, two kilometers. People rarely will, like, sue you for your clothing. So what do we say here? There's still a principle that very much applies. Bring the humanity out. If you think that you have an enemy, if somebody is your enemy or you feel animosity towards them, they feel animosity towards you, bring the humanity back out in the relationship. It's amazing how you can hate someone when we demonize them, when we don't think about how they might have family, how they might have a mother, how they might have someone who loves them. It's easy when we're at work or when we're at school or wherever it is to think that person is an object who hates me. But as soon as we start thinking about them as a person, as soon as we equalize the playing field, it's harder, not impossible, but harder to hate them. For example, think about the men and women who do atrocious things in the name of ISIS. And think about their families who haven't bought into the ISIS propaganda and who are hanging their heads in shame in their communities and can't believe what their children have done. Last year or two years ago, around Christmas time, there were all those commercials. It was for like a chocolate bar or something. But it was depicting a real-life event that happened in World War II on Christmas Day when the German army and the Allied armies were so close to each other in the trenches. And they both stopped fighting and they started singing Christmas songs. And eventually, they even joined up in different places in the, in the war. And they joined up and they had Christmas together. And it was a cute little commercial about like giving this chocolate bar to a, to a German or a German giving a chocolate bar to uh, someone else. And I can't remember exactly what it was. But in that moment, they weren't the enemy. They were people who had very similar values, 
who had a very similar faith, who were able to relate to one another. And what happened in those moments, the next day when they were forced to fight each other again, most wouldn't. And their commanding officers would have to move them to another area and bring in another area because they had already made friends with the enemy. And when you make friends with the enemy, it's really, really hard to kill them. They brought the humanity back in. The second thing that we need to do is to remember that, remember that we were loved when we were still enemies in our own hearts. Because you might be saying, this enemy of mine has really hurt me, Brian. I've lived with this pain for so long. How can God expect me to forgive them and to actually love them? God can't understand what I'm going through. He sure can. See, Romans 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we still hated God, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, when we hated God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we now be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, God knows exactly what it's like to love someone who is hard to love because we were the ones who were hard to love. God loved us and he died for us while we were still his enemies. This isn't the first time I've talked about this topic. Last fall, I talked about it and Corey Pashir's grandfather was here with us. And I had the honor of talking to him after the service. And in that conversation, he expressed that, yes, Brian, this is a hard topic. And then he went on to tell me his story. How he grew up in Holland during the Nazi occupation. How he saw the atrocities done to people. And yet he himself had come to a place in his faith where forgiveness and love were the only option. And I appreciated his story. Because it's something that I've never gone through. Similarly, we mentioned Corey Tenboom at the beginning, and this is what she writes at the end of The Hiding Place, a book that she wrote. After the war, she went around speaking about forgiveness and reconciliation. She even went back into Germany because, in her words, it was a land in ruins, cities in ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, the minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over the land. It was at a church service in Munich, she says, that I first saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center in Raversenbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, her, her sister's painful, blanched face. 
He came up to me at the church as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bluensdale, the need for, for, to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So what I want us to do right now, we're going to take a few moments in prayer. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts to those who are our our enemies. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to forgive, to help us to love. And as Corey says, that's not something that we muster up ourselves, but something that God will give us if we ask for it. So we're going to take a few minutes of silence, and I'm going to just open and close this in that time. Heavenly Father, right now, this is where the rubber hits the road. We can talk about it, We can read it, we can agree with it on paper, but if we close up our Bibles and we just leave here still hating our enemies, we are to be more pitied than our enemies. And so, Father, I just want to pray right now, in the silence of the next few moments, that you would bring to mind those that we need to forgive. Not because they deserve our forgiveness, but because you ask us to forgive that you ask us to love. And so out of just pure obedience to you, we want to do that. Lord, there are people here who have been hurt just so badly that it may feel absolutely impossible. But Lord, we are here today and we stand on your promise that with people it is impossible, but with you nothing is impossible. And so, Father, we pray right now that you would start to do miracles in our lives and in our hearts right now. And that you would start that healing and forgiving process today. Thank you.
First John 3, starting in verse 11, says this. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his, act, his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And so, Father, we we need to just take a moment and confess our own sin as well here. For the bitterness and the hatred and the lack of forgiveness that we have held on to. We just confess that to you right now. We recognize that we've been hurting ourselves, maybe even hurting other people. Because of those emotions, because of those thoughts in our lives. We ask that you would forgive us for that. Lord God, we pray right now for those who have taken the first step to forgive whoever it is that you put on our heart. Lord, as we go into our world and into our week, we ask that you would help us to love them and to love those who are just hard to love. Lord, we ask that we could do that, not by our own might, but because, because you right now are pouring your love into us. And so, Father, we acknowledge that you love us. And we acknowledge that you love those around us. You acknowledge, we acknowledge that you love and you died for those that are just so hard to love. And if you love them that much, then will you help us to also love them? Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this word that is hard. And we we recognize that we, we whine and complain sometimes because it's just so hard to follow. And yet, you've given us your word because your will is better than anything that we can see or imagine. So Father, help us to live it out. Help us to love. Help us to serve you. We release the anger, the resentment, the bitterness. Whatever it is that we've been holding on to, right now we just release that to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.